the American founding fathers included George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, John Hancock. Some of them signed the Declaration of Independence in 1776, took part in various ways in the American Revolution and uh, the production of the American Constitution. Across the US, they're universally respected as heroes. Wise, brave, noble, moral, religious men, men who put their country first, who personally risked everything. The reality, no doubt, is somewhat different to, uh, to the legend, but that's not the way America likes to remember its heroes. Australia just doesn't have that same sort of noble beginning. Our founding fathers, well, they were convicts or soldiers uh, or free men running away from something. <laughs> sure, we had good men like Arthur Phillip, Lachlan Macquarie, they did lots of good things, but I think they were probably the exception rather than the rule. So I don't think we quite understand the, the adoration, the, the respect Americans hold their founding fathers in, the priority of parentage. That's America. Now I want you to take what the Americans think about their found, founding fathers, times it by ten, and you begin to get some idea of what the Jews thought about their founding father, Abraham. Was Abraham God first spoke to when he was in Mesopotamia? God promised to make him the father of many nations, that his descendants would be as many as the stars in the sky. He promised him a land that everyone would live in. He promised that Abraham would be a blessing to the whole world. And eventually God's promise came true through Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, then hundreds of years in Egypt, then through Moses, Abraham's descendants grew and grew into a nation. Then in the wilderness and finally the promised land with Joshua. Then we jump through kings and conquests, through exiles and returns and the nation survived. Through Assyrian invasion, Babylonian invasion, then the Greeks and the Romans, all the way through to the time Paul wrote this letter to the Romans in about 60 AD. And Abraham was the father of all that history. And the sticking point, the, the, the friction, the, the, the point of friction for this church in Rome, as we've been reading through Romans, has been about how the Jews, the descendants of Abraham, can sit side by side with the Gentiles. How they can both belong to Jesus and what that looks like because it's always been pretty easy to tell the Jews apart. Back in Genesis 17, God told Abraham to circumcise his whole household as a sign of the covenant God was making with him, a visual identification that marked them off as separate. Abraham's offspring, every other nation. And it had been the same for every Jew since, including all of the Jews Paul was writing to sitting in that church or those churches in Rome. And what that looked like for the Jews was they felt like that gave them a head start when it came to being right with God. They had the sign of God's covenant on them. They had the law that spelled out 
what they were to do. And they felt that gave them something to brag about. They felt that gave them a reason to be proud when it came to comparing themselves with the rest, the the Gentiles uh, they sat next to in church, uh, Gentiles who had none of those things. But Paul has spent the last three chapters spelling out how all of that is no advantage at all. On the negative side, he's been saying that everyone has sinned. Those who have the law break the law and those who don't have the law also sin. And on the positive side, because everyone receives as a gift salvation, by faith it's completely free with no payment required, there's no difference, there's no grounds on which to brag. You can see how he's how he finishes up his argument in uh, verse 28 of chapter 3. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there's only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Here we are. He's made his case There's no difference, everyone's saved by faith, not through keeping the law. Well now he's moving on to his closing argument and this is his slam dunk, this is his big finish, this is the the, the culmination, it's the the encore song in his concert performance. He's going to look at Abraham. Because if Abraham can prove the point, well then it cuts the legs out from any Jewish pride because they always look to Father Abraham as their model. And so he says in chapter 4 verse 1, what did Abraham discover? If he was actually justified, if he was declared right with God by doing something, well then I guess he had something to boast about. And so presumably would those Jews sitting out there in church. Well what do the scriptures say, verse 3? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It doesn't say Abraham circumcised his family and God decided that he was righteous. It says Abraham believed and God credited that belief to him as righteousness. To quote from Genesis 15, God promises Abraham as many children as the stars in the sky and we're told that Abraham believed. He took God at his word and God credited that to him as righteousness. Now we might think, okay, he earned something by that belief. That's That's not the way it works. It's not even that the belief was work that he earned. Because verse 4, Paul goes on to talk about two ways in which people can receive money. You can either earn it by doing something or you can do nothing for it and get it as a gift. And that's the way God's righteousness works. He recognises Abraham's trust and then he fills up his bank account with righteousness. Verse 5, However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. 
You see the difference? Faith is not about working. Faith is about non-working. Faith is about accepting the gift. You can't present your faith to God and then demand payment. Faith is non-work. You have to simply trust. Even King David, a man after God's own heart, doesn't earn God's favour. He enjoys the free gift. Paul goes on to quote David himself in verse 7. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Forgiven, covered over, not counted. Who's the the subject of all of those verbs? Who's the one who's doing all of that? It's not David, he's not doing any of that. God does all of that. A gift you can't work for and David says, how blessed is that? And I think Paul's little sly dig here is the Jews thought they were blessed but here's Paul saying, anyone who sins are forgiven, anyone who receives a gift is blessed, even those Gentiles. The Gentiles are just as blessed as you forgiven Jews. There's nothing special about the blessing of simply being Jewish. Well, when Paul goes on, moves his argument a little further, he's going to talk about the importance of doing things in the right order. Uh, to keep, uh, he's going to talk about the significance of sequence. The significance of sequence. I don't know whether you're a MASH fan. Is anybody here a MASH fan? Yeah, I thought Neil might be a MASH fan. There's this old episode of MASH uh, and the, uh, the Koreans, had, Vietnamese, had, North Vietnamese, had dropped a, uh, an unexploded bomb. It had dropped into the middle of their, uh, um, into the middle of camp and uh, uh, Hawkeye was given the job of having to disarm it and so they were reading, yelling out the instructions for how to disarm it from over there behind a bunker and the instructions said, carefully remove the nose cone. So, carefully remove the nose cone. Uh, and, then, and then they yelled out, carefully cut the wires leading to the fuse. And they carefully cut the wires leading to the fuse and then they read the next line of the instruction manual which said, but be careful to pull out the fuse first. Well, the bomb goes off. Luckily, it's a propaganda bomb full of leaflets rather than explosives and so no one got hurt. But the order of things is very important, isn't it? I've got a couple of recipes that I use, which I now know, you've got, further down it says, add the egg whites which you have previously whipped. <laughs> it's a terrible recipe. It produces a great uh, pudding, but... You've got to remember to whip the egg whites first. You don't add them and then, oh, I was supposed to have whipped them. The order of things is very important. The order of things Paul's talking about here is the order of events between when Abraham was made righteous and when he was circumcised. Does anyone remember the chapter God promised Abraham descendants as big as the stars? Uh, when Abraham believed God and God credited to him, Genesis 15. Well, does anyone know when Abraham was circumcised? Genesis 17. Now, you might think that's only two chapters, but when you work it out, it's 17 years. 
There's 17 years between when God was declared right, uh, between when Abraham was declared righteous and when he was circumcised. It's the significance of sequence. God doesn't declare Abraham righteous because he circumcised his family. It was the other way around. Abraham had already been declared righteous because he trusted God's word and then God instructed him to obey. He gave him a sign of his right standing. That's what Paul says in verse 11. Now look at it carefully because it confused a couple of people when we looked at it on Bible study on Friday night. Verse 11, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Circumcision came later. It was only an external sign of what had already happened on the inside. He'd been made righteous while he was uncircumcised. Later, he received circumcision as a seal of that righteousness. It's an interesting word. It's not just a sign, it's a seal. A seal represents the authority behind something, behind someone. There's nothing special about the seal itself. The seal has no power on its own. It's a visual sign that represents the one who has the power. For example, you qualify for a degree and at the end of your course you get a degree and there's nearly always a seal of the institution who awards the degree. The seal shows that the degree is authentic. You can only get the seal after you've graduated. You don't get the degree before you've trained. There's a right way of doing things. Now, there's nothing special about the seal that's on your degree. On your degree, You could photocopy it, you could forge it. it. It's not the seal that makes you the graduate. It's the university that has the power to confer that degree. But what the seal does, it gives people confidence in what the university has done and gives confidence in you. And Paul's saying that circumcision works a little like that. It's a seal. It confirms the validity, the power, the authority of the one making the promises. On its own it means nothing. It's a sign on the outside that God's done something on the inside. When God declares someone righteous, like he did with Abraham. And it's a seal because it helps us trust the promises of God when he says, I'll make you righteous when you trust me. And there's a line of thought that continues through to the New Testament. And when we baptise someone, we say that it's both a sign and a seal that helps us trust the promises that the sign points to. Circumcision's a seal. And all of this has implications for who's in the family and who's not in your family. If all of this is true, this is sort of like the theory, let's move towards the application. Uh, has something to do with who's in your family and who's not. I wonder if you've caught uh, the show on SBS, Who Do You Think You Are? It's a great show. Uh, They research the family background of famous people and they find out all sorts of information about their ancestors. Sometimes it's good, sometimes there's some unpleasant surprises. They find relatives they never knew they had. And, well, it's sort of like that here. Paul's saying you need to be 
redrawing your family tree. The way you'd previously recorded it, the way you previously connected everything was all wrong. Because it's actually all about faith, it's not about your bloodlines. It's about faith, not your bloodlines. Halfway through verse 11 he says, So then, Abraham is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness may be credited to them. And he's also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. The Jews thought they were related to Abraham because they were physically descended, because they carried the physical sign of Abraham and that everyone else was not part of the family. But Paul says, you've got brothers you never even realised you had, offspring from the same parent. It's trusting God's word that makes you a child of Abraham because that's what Abraham did. And God does something on the inside which has nothing to do with what's on the outside. You're a member of the family not because you look like someone but because God's done something on the inside the same as them. Paul's saying you Jewish Christians need to look across at those Gentiles sitting next to you. You need to recognise them as your long lost brothers. While you're at it, a big hug wouldn't be out of place either. A big emotional family reunion. And so Paul reaches this conclusion about the the revelation of relatives and who your family is. There in verse 16. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. And whenever we read the word all in Gentiles, Just translate that as Jew and Gentile. It's not a, sometimes it's a worldwide thing, but it's nearly always Jew and Gentile. Maybe guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only those who are of the law, but also of those who are of the faith of Abraham. He's the father of us all. As it's written, I've made you the father of many nations. Now that's a principle. In the Roman church it meant Jew and Gentile but we can extend that uh, here today. He's a father of all of us who have the faith that he had. Whatever our colour, whatever our education, our income, our sex, none of that matters. If we belong to God by faith, if he's put us right with himself because we trusted his word, then Abraham is our father too. We're part of the same family. And that's not just theory, is it? Perhaps you've had that experience of meeting other Christians, perhaps in another culture or country, even another language. That's when it is really amazing. When you watch other Christians singing, you can't understand a word they're saying and yet you feel like you're joined to them. You have no idea what they're saying but you can say Amen because you know exactly how they feel. That's true, it's a reality, isn't it? We feel an immediate connection with family. We've never met, 
But we're all spiritually descended from Abraham because we trust God. And by the way, this really does say something about what faith looks like. Uh, Abraham is a figure of faith. He's an example. Now, the way some people talk about faith, uh, you'd think it was a little like a cold or the flu. It's something that you catch. Have you ever heard anyone ever had anyone say to you, you've got faith, I haven't got faith, I wish I had faith like you? Faith's not like that, as Paul describes it here. It's not, something, it's not simply something that some people have and others don't. There's no faith gene, there's no faith germ. You don't get it or catch it, you express it. Faith is expressed. That's the point of verses 18 to 22. Abraham showed faith in real concrete ways. His wife was 90, he was 100. On on the surface, only a fool would believe, would keep believing God's promise. But God had said he'd have a child and so Abraham trusted. Look at verse 19. Paul could have said verses 19 to 22 in in a sentence, but, but look at how he hammers it home. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. That's what faith is. That's what faith looks like. Faith has hands and feet. Being fully persuaded that God can do what he says despite appearances and then choosing to show that by obeying. Notice too that he's being strengthened uh, in his faith. That's passive. He doesn't strengthen his own faith. It's God who's strengthening his faith. And that's one of the things that this seal of circumcision does. It's one of the things that God's reminders in 12 and 15 and 17. God is strengthening his faith, giving him reminders and seals to confirm it. And so as a result, Abraham's not only the father of all who have faith, he's an example for us as well. A model, someone to be copied. There's a saying that you need to learn the lessons from history And Paul wants the same thing for the Roman Christians. We need to learn a lesson. We need to to model our lives on that of Abraham. So he comes to the application. So what? Verse 23. The words it was credited to him were were written not for him alone but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead delivered over to death for our sins, raised to life for our justification. Abraham expressed faith despite all the circumstances that pointed against it and God made him righteous. His body was as good as dead but God brought life out of death. And there's parallels for that in us, for us as well. You and I are called to express faith like that that Jesus did die for our sin, that he was raised to life. We're called to trust that God brought life from death 
just as Abraham did. That he did it for Jesus, that he'll do it for us. And our faith is to have hands and feet as well, where to express it. Many of us here are Christians. Uh, We've made that decision to trust Jesus once when we became a Christian, but we express our faith daily. We express our faith that Jesus has paid for our sin, that God has made us right. We express that daily when we try not to add to what Jesus has done. When we rest in the work of Jesus. When we obey God out of love rather than duty or earning. We express our faith by the attitude of humility when we look at other people as we recognise the grace that's been shown to us and we show that same grace to others. We express our faith by letting go of pride and ego because we're sinners who deserve wrath but who've been shown grace. We express faith daily by praying. Prayer is faith in action. A lack of prayer means you are trying to live life by yourself because you don't trust God. You don't trust his power. You don't trust his attention. You don't trust his love. Prayer is faith in action. We express faith every time we put God's priorities above earthly priorities. Every time we choose to build treasure in heaven rather than treasure on earth we're expressing faith. Every time we value Jesus' opinion more than the opinion of those around us, every time we choose to make Jesus greater and ourselves smaller, every time we choose the narrow road over the wide road, we're expressing faith in God's word. That's what it means for us to live with Abraham as our father. May we do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a gift to be made right due to nothing of our own but all of Jesus and all of grace. Help us to trust that and help us to live out that trust day by day that Jesus might be honoured. Amen.